from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Jen Reigert, I'm a writer. Jersey Gwizdowski, I'm an actor. Jennifer Kerfman, I'm an actor. And Kit Lavoie, I'm a writer and director. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about acting in theater versus film and television. Uh, In an actor's career, they very often will be called upon to work in different uh, media. And while there are many aspects of an actor's job that remain the same, depending on whether they are doing theater or film or television, there also are unique demands of each form uh, that require that actors approach their job in a somewhat different way, whether they're working for the screen or they're working for the stage. So today we're going to be talking about the ways in which acting for the stage and acting for the screen are similar and the way they're different and particularly the ways in which an actor might modulate some of the tools that we've discussed in earlier episodes depending on the medium that they are working in. So to start off uh, before we start talking about the ways in which it might affect the way you use particular tools, in what ways are the goals and tasks of an actor Uh, similar and different between the live stage and the filmed medium? Well, I think one of the differences is that in live theater, your goal is to have something that's reproducible night after night in front of a live audience. And in uh, film and television, your goal might be to provide different options for the editor. So in one, it's to have something that can be consistent, and the other, it's something uh, of variety. That word consistent, I think, is a huge part of your job as an actor, no matter uh, which medium you're working in. Because I think that being consistent in the theater over the, over the course of a, you know, day after day after day after day doing the same role and the same arc, And being consistent in that way is incredibly important. And being able to deliver the same performance for the audience on the Wednesday matinee as you can for the Saturday night. But you also have to be consistent in a camera setting, but in a completely different way to be able to deliver maybe that variety of performance you're talking about, but with with real precision about hitting marks because of the way that the editor needs to be able to put everything together. So though it's, it's incredibly important to be consistent in both cases, but it looks like a completely different job in some ways. Hmm. So the consistency is from, like if you were filming a scene, you would want to start and end in the same place so that the things would match up, but the modulation would come in the middle. Or, because I can just imagine like an inconsistent actor doing like the the close-up and the what's the the <laughs> wide shot that in one take they're really you know super quiet and intense and the other one they're yelling you can never have you can never cut between the two because they're inconsistent right 
Well, I also think that it has to do with, because you're going to shoot multiple takes of both the close-up and the wide shot. And again, part of it is about giving different options to have once you're in the room. I, I think the consistency in a lot of ways, there actually are very many ways in which acting on stage and acting on screen are kind of the opposite of each other. That, and it goes back to really what you were saying before about that the job of the actor is to capture an arc over the whole evening. And when you're working on a scene, you know, you're really, it's about capturing a moment. And literally, sometimes it literally is a moment. It's, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten takes in a row of the place where you go to the counter, say, I'll see you tomorrow and pick up your keys. You know, and that idea that's important is once you've captured on film, once you've captured you saying, I'm, uh, I'll see you tomorrow and picking up your keys in one way, it has been captured. It is not worth then doing take after take of the same thing. But what is critical is you pick up your keys at the same point in the line. Because you can't cut together. That's the part that needs to be consistent. It's the physical end of things. Whereas on stage, if one night you pick up the keys at the beginning of the line and the next night you pick it up at the end of the line, it's not going to affect an awful lot. And yet, you do need to play the whole journey of the character over the course of the night, night after night after night after night. You're not doing that on film. But again, you do need to have those very specific things, the point where you turn to the camera, exactly the same place every single time. Because what happens is, if they've got you on one angle, and then you turn, and they cut to another angle, and your head is still back where it was before, they can't cut those two things together. And, you know, that, that's so much, actually, of what a film is about, is about the way that it's edited together. And they can actually, an editor and a director in a room, can actually really change a performance, can change the tempo of a performance, can put together things that were shot on two very different days and two very different takes. Very often, actually, reaction shots come from the first take, when people are actually hearing things for the first time. But the line that the actor is delivering comes from take nine after they've, you know, really kind of worked out how they want to deliver it. But still, it's really important because they're going to be toggling between your reaction in take one back to the other actor, then back to you for your response. You can't be looking in two different directions in those two different takes. Yeah. It almost sounds like, I mean, it doesn't almost sound, it sounds like you're saying, Kit, that the consistency is of a different kind, the repeatability is of a different kind in the two media, which I think supports what you said about them in many ways, those acting for those, those two um, very different venues being uh, the opposite of each other. One way I like to think of it is that the differences sort of fall into two categories. There are differences in the process, and then there are differences in the technique. And that's always been a useful way for me to think about the ways in which the work that I do that is consistent in all media fits in. Because there are things about preparation and then things about once you're working with collaborators that are different about the process. And then there are just those simple technique things that, that are more about what the camera sees versus what an audience sees on stage mm -hmm. and the way to tell a story or build an arc as an actor or provide the pieces for someone else to build, build an arc as an actor, those often fall more under technique. Uh, and I, I would say that the repeatability falls, you know, fall, again, falls under the technique category. Well, that actually is something that you said in there that I think is so important in terms of a fundamental difference in the forms, which is that 
when you're watching a stage show, you can look wherever you want to look as an audience member. When you're watching a film, the camera is telling you, you know, where to look. You have only one option of where to look. And that idea, actually, the way that it manifests itself in terms of technique, which is really important, is that, you know, they have done before a shot, then they bring the actors in, they've measured out all the focus lengths, they've spent often an hour, two hours, or three hours, or four hours lighting the set in such a way that they know you need to walk in here, you need to walk exactly 10 feet in, you need to stop on this mark, you need to deliver your line, the camera will circle around you, you will then go nine feet further to your next mark, look over your shoulder, deliver the line, and then walk out, and you need to hit those things precisely because the relative delicacy of film lighting versus stage lighting is significant. That really, there is a big difference about whether your head is in one place or four inches to the other side. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, depending on exactly what the setup of the shot is. But, you know, the, but those demands to really do those things and with virtually no rehearsal. I mean, you know, sort of put you through your paces, but it's not like a stage show where you've got you know, three to six weeks to figure out the answers to those questions. Yeah. Um, you know, but, it, but it's that idea of having to seem very alive and uh, in the moment while also hitting incredibly specific marks. Whereas in a stage production, it's you're going to go around and get on the other side of the chair and then you're going to walk and get the desk between you, which, you know, there's a lot of, you've got a, a relative amount of variability, and also generally it's staged around sort of natural human behavior. Whereas very often on a set, yeah. it really isn't. It's, and then you're gonna crane your neck, and can you crane it a little bit further and then deliver the I love you? And you end up literally sometimes twisted in bizarre contortions to get into the right light. But again, the director and the cinematographer have worked so that that bizarre contortion looks perfectly natural and better than anything else could look because of the place they put the camera and the lights. Yeah. I think that's a really important element of it, even on stage as well, you know, the idea that, that I have many, many times had to make really precise physical choices and be able to carry them out day after day to hit tiny little windows of light, but that, the, that light got set based on me I didn't step into tech rehearsals and they said, here's where the light is, you have to hit it. They said, okay, now when you make that cross, where do you start, how do you get here? And then they focused the light to me. And so it, the difference was, was, is very much, you still have to have that same level of precision, but the way you get to encounter it and learn how to do it and assimilate it is completely different. I, uh... My first job in New York City was uh, an under five on guiding light, and they had forgotten or uh, didn't know that I'm like almost six four, and it was like to be a valet <laughs> and uh, like bus or what did they call bellboy at a hotel, and they built a little. This was back like the the studios were very small and the sets were on the like East Forties, up about fourteen floors, and they didn't have a lot of space to work with. And they built this little valet hut that was made for a person that was about five three um, <laughs> or smaller, uh, but it had already been lit. The set, the shot was already set. The blocking for the principal actors was already there. Who were you know all the principal actors and soap operas are all between four 
11 and 5-5 five, five anyway, many of them. And the person I was doing the scene with was, and that was the most important part of the shot. So my job was to crouch in this tiny little outhouse-looking valet thing and do my scene um, with all of my leg muscles engaged fully, pretending as if I was sitting at a normal height, or that actually standing, I think was the idea. Um, because if I sat, I was a little too short. But there's, I mean, they're not going to rebuild that thing for me. They're not going to change the lighting thing for me. They already spent, in that case, four hours setting it up. And they hadn't just set up that one shot. They'd set up the entire episode because those they were working, like, really quickly. So I just had to grin and bear it, literally. Um, and it turned out fine, and nobody was the wiser except, you know, my legs the next day because I had to do so many takes crouching behind that thing like a... Velociraptor or something, <laughs> and, the, and the actress playing against me was like, you know, another day at the office, and she kept wanting to go back and try it again. Um, that was a lot of fun. Well, that's something that I mean, no matter which medium you're working in, you know, you have to, as an actor, suspend your disbelief. You know, it's not actually life. You are are trying to get as close to it as you can, but there really is a fundamental difference in the nature of the ways in which you need to suspend your disbelief that you know when you're on stage generally you know you've got a 20 by 15 foot area that's kind of usually you know the area in which the room is and the space that things take up is roughly what it is and certainly you look around you know you look out and it's there's not a wall it's a big dark space or maybe you can see some people and you look back the other direction you can see into the wings you know and also probably the furniture and stuff like that might not be especially real furniture. It was stuff that was built for the uh, for this particular play. Um, but still, the space and the space in which you interact with people remains relatively, you know, like a, at least like a space. <laughs> Whereas in film, I mean, the flip, which is one, you'll very often be in an actual classroom or you'll, you know, with an actual blackboard and an actual desk, you know, which those parts are real. But what people don't realize is Outside, again, the, the, the film is all about what's inside the frame. And at almost any time, especially if you're doing a shot indoors in a classroom, if you were to pan the camera a foot and a half in either direction, there's, you know, because of course you need the full crew and you need the camera set up, so all of the stuff that's in the place in the room where the camera and the crew actually are normally are piled up in a corner and there are you know 30 people in the room and there's lights and the lights and camera can literally be inches from the actor's face and it, it just again neither one of them is an especially realistic situation and your job as an actor the the similarity there is that your job as an actor is to bring you know recognizable human life to that situation. Uh, but it also is the challenge of specifically what it is that you need to imagine away is 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 really fundamentally very different. Well, and especially for like over the shoulder shots, you yeah. have a camera essentially kind of, I mean, not literally touching you, although sometimes I feel like it is, it's like right on your face, next to your face, and you feel it there. And also when you're doing close-ups, Oftentimes, um, the other actor in the scene will be great and be there and, and be giving you stuff to work with, but sometimes you are acting with someone just kind of feeding you lines and they're not giving you anything 
to react to. It's almost kind of like acting for film and television is kind of like acting in an audition setting where it's you're, you're trying to make the stimulus for yourself or kind of planting yourself in the middle of a scene to the best of your ability. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. That is often what it feels like, especially if it's a stand-in that's yeah. delivering the lines and you're looking past the cameraman to the stand-in guy that's, or the script supervisor, yeah. whoever it is that's crammed behind mm -hmm. the camera operator and the AD and the boom guy. Um, and it can be, it's like, uh, it can get especially cramped when you're like on location in an interior shot, like the classroom or the courtroom, mm -hmm. um, because you've got nowhere to go, at least on a soundstage. It's like, we need to get the reverse of this. So we're going to pull out the wall and, you know, or spin the set around and all this crazy stuff they can do so that we can get the, the reverse. But in the classroom or in the, you know, wherever you might be, it's mm -hmm. a lot of artificial hedging to sneak people out a few feet and fit a camera in there and pull out all the actors that had been there or just leave one so that we have an illusion of the crowd and completely contort and change what the space is and right outside the edge of frame are all those people. It's If acting is like, uh, what is, who said it? You know, truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances. Is that Stanislavski? Somebody likes Stanislavski. <laughs> <laughs> one of those acting people. <laughs> Yeah, it's whoever said it. They, they were right. But the imaginary circumstances kind of take a different shape in the different media. That they're really ridiculous circumstances sometimes in film. I and mean, they're ridiculous in theater, but in a different yeah. way, you know? I remember one film I worked on, literally, and I, I did a scene with a, you know, kind of a big actor, and she was there for my close ups and was giving me my lines, but she was also knitting. <laughs> <laughs> so she was feeding me my lines while she was knitting a scarf. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> a giant knitting actress? Yeah. <laughs> oh, she was famous, you mean? Yes, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Actually, she was also very Bit tall. <laughs> I was also on two boxes to reach her. But oh yeah, yeah, standing on boxes, or yeah. in my case, having other people standing on boxes <laughs> or crouching. In. I mean, there's so many ridiculous things they do to get that little shot of the perfect thing with the light in the background, the way they like it. Oh, and it's man. all about it's all about what's in the frame on film, you know. And that's I, I uh, worked on a film a while ago um, with Freddie Highmore, who was. A terrific, ter I mean, he's a terrific actor, but he's been acting since he was a fetus, essentially. I mean, he's been acting forever. And that was something, even though he's, you know, a, a, a young guy, what he understood about the nature of film just bowled me over. And, and two specific things that I remember was one time we were trying to get a shot and we were trying to get it and trying to get it and kept missing it. And finally he said, can I come around and see the setup? because it was something we were trying to get his head in between two things. And he came around, looked at the setup, went up, came in, and we nailed it. And it was just something like he had done that enough times, he just needed to see what it was, and he could get his head where it needed to be, and he, and he just hit it. And another time he was doing something, he was doing really gorgeous work, like really beautiful work on this really important scene. And we were all leaning in. I mean, it was just a gorgeous take. And all of a sudden, a fly flies across the, um, uh, the, uh, the lens. And everyone, just like you see, just sits back like, we can't use it now. Because, and he was exactly where he was, stopped, 
went back a line and went forward. He had seen out of the corner of his eye the fly go across the lens and went back and kept going forward with the same intention. And sure enough, we ended up using that take. We had to find something to cut away to in that moment. But he saved the take because he was both totally in the moment and acting, but also aware of the technical demands of the film, which was, it was pretty amazing. And that's the thing too. I mean, obviously the more you do it, the better you get at it. But, and they have people specifically looking for this, but in terms of continuity, in terms of being aware of, of kind of hitting your mark and knowing where your hair is and where all, you know, you know, is your hair in front of your shoulder this time? Is it just being aware of of yourself for all of these takes? Well, that was the other. That was the other thing on that same show is that there was um, a point at which where we had to go back and and redo a retake of something like two weeks later. It was just this little scene, and so we went and he was looking out the window and he went and he scratched the back of his head. And the script supervisor, who on a film set is the person who's in charge of uh, uh, continuity. Uh, said, wait a minute, wait a minute, can we go back? You were scratching with your right hand, not your left hand. And he said, I don't think so. And she said, no, it's in my book. And he was incredibly polite. He said, well, can, do you mind, can we check the, the tape from the other week to see? And sure enough, he was right. <laughs> yeah. And he, he didn't know he was going to have to reshoot that scene. I mean, I think it's just something from having shot films until he was so young, it's just become such a part of the way that he... Uh, that he works on stage, but uh, on, on screen rather, and on the set. But I mean, those are the kinds of things that, I mean, frankly, like that's a great example of if we'd done this reshoot and he'd been scratching his head with the wrong hand, you couldn't have cut between two angles mm -hmm. because all of a sudden his hand would flip. You know, and stuff like that happens all, I mean, that's, that happens. And, you know, there are famous films. I know there's a sequence in The Untouchables where they keep cutting back and forth to Sean Connery and his, his uh, shirt keeps coming buttoned and unbuttoned. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was no little production. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of balls to keep in the air on a, on a film set. And, you know, you kind of have to do that on top of all of your acting work. The flip side, though, is on stage, you need to do your acting work the same way night after night after night after night after night after night after night. And that's a whole different kind of technique, not just to be able to get there, but be able to recognize how you got there so you can get back there every night. And you can't stop yeah. <laughs> a live <laughs> production to do it over again. You have to get it right the the first time every time and you have to if something happens during a live production you have to deal with it and keep going whereas you know obviously with the taped version you can try it again you can't nail it if you don't nail it you keep going you know you can't go uh, the rest is silence <laughs> and then say can we take that back <laughs> I think I'll get it this time. Uh, but, I mean, that actually gets into something that can happen on film, though, is that whatever happens gets captured. And I've worked on films where there were great moments of, like, this burst of anger from an actor. But really what that was was an actor who flubbed their line and then threw their, their prop down. And we used it in the film because it was, like, this very real moment that actually wasn't a moment... It was actually, again, the way that film works and the way things get edited together. It wasn't a moment from that moment in the scene. We actually used it later in the scene 
you know, because it fit and it helped to tell the story. But that actually, I think, to me, gets at sort of the fundamental, the, the base fundamental difference between film and theater, which is that in the theater, the actor is ultimately the keeper of the collaboration. Ultimately, the work that the actor and the director do in the rehearsal room, it is the actor's responsibility to take that, bring it into cohesive whole, and deliver it night after night on stage. Whereas in film, it is the actor is giving all sorts of options in the, on the set, but then it's the director who then becomes the keeper of the performance and goes into the edit room with an editor and takes all of these options that the actor has given him and craft it into a performance. Which is, in a lot of ways, a difference in, in process, which then translates for the actor, especially into a number of differences in technique, like the physical technique, like repeatability. Because there's physical technique in theater acting as well, but it's of a different nature. And I think also a fundamental process difference that might be a reason we're having this episode of the podcast is that when you're logging hours on a set, and putting takes on film, I mean, you don't get as much opportunity to lay down film of yourself as you do to work out moments in a rehearsal studio, rehearsal process, or on stage. That those are kind of precious moments that have been set up for four hours and to which you're committing time and crew energy. So there is the opportunity and a lot of money. So there isn't really the opportunity to have rehearsal which is somebody like Freddie Highmore, who is a great example, who has been acting since he was just past fetus, you know, has gained so much insight into working on films and being on film sets that those things that are often, for us as actors in theater at this point, are careers innate, like keeping open to the audience and not upstaging yourself or others and, you know, all those kind of things, he's got those ingrained, that they are second nature, that they are in his muscle memory or in his, you know, his acting stenographer is keeping note of those type of things rather than the type of things that might be the case in, in theater. And I think that's in large part and why we sp a lot of takes get wasted and I've wasted a lot of takes in my career and, and blown a lot of things early on in, in film work and have, are because um, I didn't have the experience on set or on camera. So I think one way to um, get adeptness at that technical stuff in film is to log as many hours as you can and even just be being present on a set and watching it in others I think as, as Kit's demonstrating can show uh, to such a great extent what an actor can do to help the process along when the stakes are high or when the you know we need to get this done before the sun goes down or before the crew goes into overtime or before we lose this person who has to go um, shoot the higher paying job tomorrow whatever it might be. That actually really strikes on a, a really fundamental difference, which is that when you're working out your performance in the theater, it's generally you, a few other actors, the director, a stage manager in a room. Whereas on a set, there is a huge crew and rented equipment and a room that you only have until a certain time. And you know, you yeah, you there's there's not a lot of room for error. And you haven't been rehearsing for three weeks. Exactly. <laughs> and it's really important in, in both of those settings to understand how you can drop in, but you get to in that weeks and weeks of rehearsal process in the theater, you you get to figure out how you get 
to build the moment to moment work into an arc and then you get to have momentum to carry you through that. And when you're working in film, you're working out of order, you're working in all of these crazy scenarios where you're doing over the shoulder shots and reaction shots with someone who's not your acting partner. And you still have to be able to drop in to that mm -hmm. in, at any given moment. And it's, I would think, I would say it's more similar to the episodic nature of rehearsing a stage play, but it is, it is absolutely your job to figure out the way that you can do that in either of those circumstances. Well, that actually is an important, such an important part is that the nonlinear filming element that very, very rarely are films shot in order. Because what you do is you say, okay, we have the restaurant for three days. So we will shoot all of the scenes that take place in the restaurant, including the scene where they meet for the first time, the scene that he learns that she's been hit by a car, and the scene where finally he reconciles with his mother. Okay. Uh, all right, but we're going to do those things three days in a row. We have yet to shoot anything, uh, you know, that's going to be, you know, any of the scenes with the mother. You might be meeting the woman playing the mother on the day of the shoot, and you're playing your big reconciliation scene before you've shot any of the reason yeah. that you need to reconcile. You know, and that's uh, that's one of the challenges of film. But again... You're in your hotel room that night and you're prepping for the shoot the next day and you know you're prepping for that scene. That is the scene. And frankly, sometimes this one page of that scene is what you need to be able to do today. Whereas again, in a, in a, in a, in a, a theater show, it's you need to do this three-hour play. The, um, the commentary tracks on a DVD get a lot of... Like, people make fun of them a lot. I don't know if you guys listen to them, but the there's this kind of common crack of like the actor, like they're that they're bullshit, and that it's just the actor saying, you know, we're wearing coats in this scene, but on that day it was really hot, or this mm -hmm. is a scene that yeah. happened during the day, and it's just all the the crew, the directors, the actors, talking about the ways in which it was difficult to be on set, but because I think some of those elements, when you're watching the movie, it's like, yeah, I don't care that you know in that scene of Sea Biscuit, <laughs> they they didn't need hats, but they were wearing hats and they were sweating. But for everybody on that set, I mean, that was the primary technical and logistical challenge of that day was dealing with that. It was supposed, well, it, it happened to rain and then we had to make it rain for every subsequent <laughs> take on the days in which it didn't rain because we got the leads and the, the, you know, the tight shots on the, on the leads. So all the B-roll, we had to bring in a rain machine and it cost us thousands of dollars. Any of that stuff, like the elements and the the circumstances in which you're shooting the the scene or much of the film, are these have a huge impact on the direction of a, of a production. Which I think is why you know on those DV tracks, it's just the actors and and the crew talking about how it was really cold that day, but they had to wear shorts and flip flops or whatever the hell it is. Well, I mean, I think though that that gets into things that sound like trivia. In fact, were the primary obstacle to their job that day. Yeah. I mean, it, it's. It's hard to behave, you know, a believably freezing cold if it's 98 degrees outside. I mean, it just is. I mean, it's your job to, and there are ways to do it, but it certainly makes it much more challenging than if it actually was 30 degrees. Yeah, and you can imagine, like, 200 people waiting for this take of this 
Seabiscuit scene and there's like a feather from a hat that keeps poking into the, the shot and it's like they spent how much money designing this costume and so they got it and it's already in another shot so they definitely have to use it but it's blocking the light and then it, you know it's like how many people are focused on this feather in this hat yeah and yes that is your whole obstacle for the day like or two days like now we have to do like two more weeks and we can't if we'd only not use the feather on the first day we wouldn't have had to do it yeah and that I mean that really is the thing that you really do you get locked once something is committed to film you are locked into that choice and you go back to that scene or you shoot the next scene where you're coming out of that room and into another room you've got to have that feather hat on even even if it causes huge problems in the next scene it's already committed to film, and perhaps if you had shot it in a different order, you wouldn't have ended up with the feather hat in in, in the in the earlier scene, so you didn't have to wear it in the second scene. But there that, they are. That happened to me in my last TV job. I had these uh, piercing things; they were like fake piercings on my face. In all, and they did all the wide shots early, which they often do, which I think is great for the actors. You know, the director will often do the wide shots, and then after you've had a couple runs through it coming for the tight shot. But before my tight shot, when they're resetting the shot, it was like a magnet, a fake like magnet piercing thing and it popped off. And so the the tight shot, I mean, they replaced it and it's something else, but it was enough of a difference that it rendered that the close up, which we spent so much time setting up and so much time shooting unusable in that episode, um, mm. which is just a factor, a fact of like that, you know, the continuity didn't add up and it was noticeable enough that you know, they had to throw it out, which sucks. <laughs> and in an edit room, frankly, I mean, it's just, this is not really what we're talking about, but the ripple effect that that has, because if you can't then use the close shot of the other actor either, because you can't cut between a, a mid shot and a close and a mid shot and a close and a mid shot and a close. You can't do that. It won't read. Right. You know, and, and, I, and I've had situations like that where it's just like one person is doing fantastic work in their close shot but there's a problem in the other person's tight shot and you just can't use it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's challenging. Well, it's, it eliminates like, um, not just the shot, but like it's an entire range of options that are lost to you now in terms of a transition, something to cut to or from or a way to tell the story or who to focus on a given point during the scene. You lose an entire little mini universe of options in, in terms of what that scene is about how to tell that story if you lose one of, one of those shots which the director has plotted out in excruciating detail beforehand even I mean especially in, in television um, because you, you need to if the script is you know changing all the time like what the story is, is what happens in those shots hmm. so that can, that can really stink I also think actually there's something we've not really touched on, which actually I'm a little surprised because I think it's probably the thing that most people would go to first about the difference between film and theater, which is the size of it. That, you know, when you're on stage, your behavior needs to be understood by people who are 100 feet away from you. On film, the camera can literally be inches from your face. And, you know, they, who is it? It's one of the famous stage actor, then became a famous film actor, but talked about, he kept doing in his first day on the set, the director kept telling him doing less and less and less and less and less, and finally said, do you want me to, so what, do you want me to not act at all? And he said, yes, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> um, but the, uh, but, but that idea of, of much smaller things read on film 
then if you were to do almost any stage performance in front of a camera, it would look ridiculous. It would look ridiculous. And if you did any camera performance on stage, it wouldn't read in all except the smallest, smallest theaters. Um, but I mean, I, I think it goes beyond that because I mean, there's certainly that size element, but also there is something when you're preparing a performance where you're trying to figure out what is the thought process of the character and what is the actions that come out of that thought process. But I think there really is a difference in terms of on stage, all the audience can see are the actions that result from the thought process. You need the thought process so that you can repeat the performance night after night. That's the role of the thought process on stage. But on film, you can actually see an actor thinking. I mean, it actually is, in, in many wonderful performances, you actually read much more of their story through watching them think than you do through watching them actually do much of anything. And, uh, you know, and that's, it's, it's interesting, because again, you need both parts, regardless of the medium, but they really play kind of fundamentally different roles, depending on, on, on whether you're on stage or on screen. Another thing about the size, not just in your actions, and it's a little bit different now with some of the bigger houses, but your volume might be something that uh, you choose to do, you choose different motivations so that your volume is something that an audience can hear in a, st in a theater. On film, they can hear the, sp the smallest sound that they couldn't in a theater. Um, so you have a lot, your, your range of quiet is a, is a lot larger on film than it is on stage. But also nowadays, there's a lot more miking going on in theater, so that's opened up a bit. But I would still say on film, it's you get more of the quiet, quiet options. But even, even when you're being miked on stage, you're still playing to the house, mm -hmm. and the mics are built to support and enhance that, but not to be the sole thing that carries your voice across. Yeah, and unless you're talking, they're not on, generally, so. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. The, the thing that we say, people say, smart theater people, Stanislavski-like people <laughs> say about uh, working in the theaters, you know, you play to the, the room that you're in, you play to the size of the room that you're in, and there are, there are levels, there are grades of sizes of, of theater houses as well and that you need to uh, make a performance you know, through certain techniques, larger or smaller, depending on the size of the theater that you're in. And then it was interesting, Kit, when you said that you know, a film performance would, would play in the, the very smallest of theaters, that it really doesn't seem to necessarily be a binary, so a, a binary issue, but an issue of scale but that the size of the room you're playing to in, is not the studio that you're in or you're not playing to the crew or the script supervisor or the best boy, but you're playing to uh, a room that ends like right in front of your face <laughs> um, or that is inside your mind. Uh, <laughs> that really, it's, and, but then within film too, there is a difference between you know, a wider shot and a, mm -hmm. and a tight shot too, that there are, there's gradation in that as well. So there might be a, a continuum. There's some, there is definitely some kind of switch that flips between camera and, and theater, which I think is playing to an audience rather than to the, the, the camera, which is the sole eye on the performance rather than bunches of pairs of eyes. 
but there does seem to be a, a continuum of, of, of playing out uh, that goes from, you know, wildlife camera to, like the one they use on National Geographic to film ants, <laughs> to <laughs> Carnegie Hall or something. Or to outdoor theater. Or outdoor theater. Yeah, those, um, uh, what do they call Outdoor musicals? Uh, outdoor theater. Is that what they call it? The, like... Those big oh, shows with cannons, like, Tecumseh. And, yeah, <laughs> like things like that. The biggest. They're trying to think the largest arena. Arena. I think they call it. I don't know what they call it. You know this. Well, that was actually something that uh, a very in, interesting, which I just had totally forgotten about, was interesting until just now. But uh, some of us have worked on. I've worked on uh, stage productions that were filmed. And I worked on the, uh, the company that was done that was in movie theaters relatively recently with uh, Neil Patrick Harris and Stephen Colbert and company. But it was so interesting to watch them. And, and I know Neil talked about it in, in interviews afterwards. But that balance of knowing both that he was going to be on screen and in a tight shot. And just... I mean, just that idea of simultaneously needing to fill the stage, but also do the detail work, you know, that he knew would read on, on camera is, I, I can't even imagine that. I have no idea how he went about that, but it, it worked because it was a performance that worked terrific on stage and worked terrific on film. Uh, and he said he was very aware of it. I wish he was here to explain how he did it because I have no idea how one would do that. Well, he's somebody, actually that entire company of company or the vast majority of them are people who have extensive experience in theater and film and I, I love it. I actually had a bunch of I wanted to talk about this for, for a while now <laughs> when we got to this part about playing camera because I love watching those for the experienced and the non-experienced actors or non-actors playing to a room and playing to a camera simultaneously or intermittently within the same performance um, I thought about the Tony Awards as a production where you have stage performances that are really I mean, they're for the room, which is, but that it's a relatively small room versus the hopefully millions of people, what is it really, 600,000 people that are watching <laughs> the Tony Awards every year. Because you're essentially making a commercial for your show. So the audience out there in many ways is much more important but to see the ways that that is directed and the things that might be director addressed to the audience or the moments where the director chooses to take something to the camera or that one of the actors takes something to the camera are fascinating. Things that play, might play really well in the room at the Tony Awards don't play on uh, TV and vice versa. I think that's fascinating to watch. I'm, I was, I'm thinking about it, I think because, I mean, I watch it often like in talk shows, like things that have like a kind of theater setup that there is an audience or even like old sitcoms have a similar mm -hmm. thing where it's people that are playing to the camera pretty much live or Saturday Night Live is another example that there are, you can watch them kind of shift between playing to the house and playing to the camera and it's really interesting or political speeches where, you know, uh, election season right now to watch politicians, especially during televised speeches, play to a giant convention hall of people and the camera, sometimes on different words within the same mm -hmm. sentence. And what that requires and the shift in delivery. Some you can see those that are, you know, better at it than others. And it's it's whatever that switch is, you know, uh, the uh, I guess I'm still in my career trying to identify how that Switches. Well, you talked about the Tony Awards. I actually wonder because it was done, it used to be done inside a Broadway theater. 
Right. And then it was done for several years in Radio City Music Hall, which is like huge. huge mammoth. And now they're doing it at the Beacon Theater, which is actually like the size of a small to mid-sized Broadway theater. And I actually wonder how that changed in terms of the modulation of the performances and how they worked on television. I just don't know, but I, but I, I no. bet that's a really fundamental difference between up being up there on the stage at Radio City Music Hall and being on the stage at the Beacon Theater. Your performance is going to be very different. And which one was more stage friendly? And I wonder if they shot them differently as a result. Hmm. Just don't know the answer to that, but I'm curious. Um, let's talk about some of the specific actor tools that we've talked about in the past around this table and on this podcast, but to talk about how they uh, might be modulated depending on the medium that you're working in. I mean, we talk about objective and obstacle often, uh, the thing that the character wants, the thing that is standing in the way of them getting what they want. In what ways might they be uh, used differently depending on whether you're working on screen or on stage? I'd say one primary difference, and again, it's not a difference of either or, but it's a difference of a proportionality, maybe. But film seems to be a medium that's much more, that responds much better to action and motion and visual activity than theater. Not that theater is not visual, it's incredibly visual, and not that film doesn't have language because it has wonderful language. But there's something about being able to do something on screen and let the story be told through action that holds up in film or keeps a film performance alive in a way that um, a scene that plays really well in a room between two people doesn't translate in the same way in a film as it does in theater. And I think finding a way to physicalize an objective can be incredibly useful when working in film. I think you'll notice too, if you in between adap like adaptations of the theater to um, film, and maybe the writers can speak to this who have adapted. But you see often a lot of these scenes are put into motion or put into, you know, physicalized in a way, and that's I think a fundamental piece of a lot of different um, either novelizations. Uh, not novelizations, but novels that are made into films or plays that are made into films. That often things are put into motion, are put into action, are taken to a different setting to reflect the, what is happening in the scene in a different way. Well, if, I mean, if you were adapting a play to a, a film, you know, you, you're not limited in the same way by space. Um, in a film, and so you know what you describe on on stage as having happened out in the yard, you can actually show, and so it, it literally changes it from the words of describing what happened to the visual of doing it. So you do get a lot more physical action because it's it, it's much more visual to, to to see a visual version of an objective versus experiencing it more audibly and yeah well it's something when you're working on stage you know it's exciting to try to find a physical expression of the action of the moment that's what you try to do 
um, you know, when you're directing and when you're acting, you know. But frankly, when you're talking about a stage, there are limitations on what you can do. You know, you can do what you can do according to the laws of physics and in that amount of space and with the set. You know, it, you can do fun things like have them climb on top of the table or jump. Yeah, I mean, you can do exciting things, but in film, you can have them chasing a train across the, you know, the I mean, there are actually ways that you can really, in a very significant way, physicalize a moment, which is, yeah, it's exciting. It's just a different sort of thing. It's a whole different vocabulary of storytelling. Film is a visual medium. Uh, in the way that theater is a more literary medium in its way. They're both, both, but... There's something, and this might apply to a bunch of acting work that we are about to talk about. There's something about focus, and this is going to be more, you know, from the director's standpoint, and I think the way that the difference, again, in process affects the technique of the actor, which is, or even the process of the actor, too, how to put that process into technique which is on stage, again, you're looking at one image and as an audience member or focusing at any different given part of the stage at any given moment and have the option of while one character is making a plea to another to check back and forth between to see how it's going and see how it's working. And the director often expertly pulls focus between the characters, between different parts of the stage, especially if there's a lot going on on stage, in order to help direct the audience and tell the story. In film, as the director, you, you, you're able to take the head of the person watching the movie literally and point it at exactly what they're supposed to be looking at at a given moment. And I think the way that that translates for the actor is you know in a take or in a shot when you are likely to, because you're giving them options, right? So I know that my tight shot of my reaction to somebody else's scene, I'm going to if there's a decision moment or if there's a moment of realizing I have something that I can take advantage of in what just happened, that you know that those are the times that you are going to get that coverage, that you're going to be able to provide those options for the editor or the director to tell that story. You know that, okay, here's where it's going to be on me to hit my marks in this story. So I want to set my objective and really all it shines a light on the work that you're doing you know you can't really escape you can't really fudge it you know you really need to have that moment and have it clearly and concisely so that they can cut it into the scene and make a usable take out of it but then on stage you you have this you have the same opportunity but it comes at a different part of the process because i i feel like in rehearsal um for for a play i i'm aware that i have that responsibility of storytelling, that the director is going to help edit the choices that I make, but part of what I need to bring to the table is an awareness that um, we just worked on a play that had a key in it. Yeah. There's that It was a very, very important prop and teeny, teeny, tiny. Yeah. And it, it was my job to know in rehearsal that everyone in the audience needs to be able to see this key at some point and to be able to bring in choices during a rehearsal process to help physical, physicalize that and tell the story um, in the way that it is the actor's job to help tell the story. And I think it's, it's a similar thing. And then to be able to deliver that in the room where you know that 
as the actor, the choice that you're making has to be the choice that draws the focus to the thing the director needs the focus to be on. I think when we talk about these tools that we have, you know, and, and the usefulness in the different media, I, I, it actually really excites me in terms of that I think it really does highlight these things as tools, not as ends unto themselves, but things that an actor has to use. And again, so much of what we've talked about uh, in the past and is a big part of our approach is the goal-oriented work. And as we've been talking about up until now, I think the goals of an actor on a film set and on a stage are similar in some ways, but they're different in other ways. And I think like, for instance, you know, with an objective, in, a, in the theater, I think the primary ultimate role for objective, or one of the primary roles, is that if you work through rehearsal, experiment with objectives, ultimately you will find ones that will carry you consistently through the play. You actually use taking the time to find the quote-unquote right objective, the one that is right for you, and that is what leads you to consistency. But an actor who knows how to experiment in rehearsal like that with various objectives until they find the one that provides them consistency on a film set can alter objective to objective to objective, take to take to take to take, to actually provide variability so that the director has choices when he gets in the edit room. Right. Um, you know, but it's just a matter of it's the same skill but you deploy it differently depending on the demands of the medium that you're working in. Um, you know, and I think that there are, you know, other ways in which that's true, that there's a lot of ways in which, specifically in the theater, an objective can be, you know, it's one of the things we talk about, objectives, that the objective is about the other person. That if you could get what you wanted without the other person in the scene, you would just leave the scene and go get what you wanted. The reason you're having a scene is because you need the other person to do something. But in a different way than is true on film, you're watching an actual relationship play out in real time, in real space, on stage. And so your objective can be a very important thing, if well-framed and if about the other person, to provide a contact point to understand that relationship. And similarly, in a different way, you know, when you're talking about film, you can use your objective, or actually you can use what is a super objective, um, you know, that thing that the character wants all the time, to be the thing that even though you are going, you know, from jumping around the script from day to day to day to day to day and shooting out of order, that and, and going from take to take with different objectives to give different sensibilities to the take, you're still the same person because underneath it you are wanting this same thing all the time. That there's the super objective that, that, that you can use uh, in that way in a, in a film, which functions differently in a film than it does on stage. Again, same tools, but you can use them to different ends if you're paying attention to what you're trying to do with them. It's been interesting for me recently because I've started to work as a director and I've been really working from that perspective in the theater at looking at what is sort of the the through line of the play for me to work from the spine of the play or the thesis and as we're talking about this tonight I'm thinking about the difference of approaching my work as an actor in on stage as 
find as a, you know the work of finding what those objectives are that will carry me through the arc of the play that will carry me from day to day to day through the arc of the play over and over again but there's something there's something that seems to be related to what I'm learning as a director that applies to the work of an actor in a film which is along the lines of what you were just saying kid about um, that super objective but really giving yourself that that sort of spine of what this character is and what the the actor story that you need to tell might be, and then giving yourself the opportunity to filter your choices as you're trying multiple objectives and multiple takes, and just make sure that they feed into that same spine, so that you really do offer a selection of options to the film director that are in line with the character that you are building, regardless of the uh, order of operations of, of shooting the film. You're essentially like choosing your color palette beforehand so that you know anything is going to be in a given. You're not going to all of a sudden appear totally unhinged and off your rocker in the performance. Well, I think that it, it really, I mean, obviously the arc that you're going to play for your character, whether it be on film or on stage, you know, it's incredibly important. It's the thing, the story, the, their story that we're going to trace. But I think that that idea of the spine to further that metaphor is there's a degree to which the rehearsal process of a play is about knowing that spine, is about understanding it, is about learning it, is about experimenting with it, is about knowing what's happening, uh, or is about discovering what's happening. Whereas on a film set, you step onto the set and they turn the camera on, and that thing that they film, that first moment you stepped on the set could end up in the finished film. Mm -hmm. You know, that you are making, you are in the process of making your performance every single time you step in front of that camera. And so that idea of, again, to extend the metaphor, that you really need to know in your preparation before you show up to the film set, not just the spine, but the way that each vertebra feeds into each vertebra being a scene that you're working on, and within a scene, how each shot that you're trying to get feeds into the larger arc of the story, you know, so that you know, okay, we're shooting vertebra number three, which is the part where I'm still in love with her and I don't know yet that she's stolen my money, and then right after that, we're going to shoot vertebra 17, uh, which is after, you know, she's been kidnapped, but, you know, before I found out, you know, that it was my evil uncle who did it or whatever it is. But you need to understand at that moment, you know, I mean, we've actually talked about, um, you know, plays as information delivery systems. And actually, there's a degree to which screenplays are even more so that. Uh, you know, as William Goldman says, screenplays are structure. You know, it's all about sort of the structure of the story. But that idea of being able to go into a scene in a film where you have only shot three scenes out of the, you know, 70 scenes that are going to be in the film and have a very clear idea of what information do I have at this point, what information don't I have at this point, which is also something you need to do when you're rehearsing a play. Although, candidly, most plays have, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten scenes. Even if you're rehearsing them out of order, A, it's still a lot less moving parts to keep, in, to keep track of. And B, 
if you're going out of order and in rehearsal and the you know, director says, oh, wait a minute, remember, you don't know it's your uncle yet. Oh, no problem, we'll go back to the scene and rehearse it some more. In a film set, you've burnt tape. And if nobody catches it, it's there forever. Before we move on from objective and obstacle, because actually I think obstacle is a good example of the way in which you can use the same tool and, and deploy them differently. You know, that when you're in the theater, again, you've got a scene, generally a long, fairly long scene in which you've got to play something else, something out. And by giving yourself multiple obstacles in the scene that you need to contend with, that can be a really great way to add texture to a scene, you know, to add nuance to a scene. When you know there are 10 things that are going to stop you from getting what you want and you need to deal with one, which might set off the other, which means you have to deal with the third one. Whereas if you're talking about a take of a, of a film, very often you can use very specific obstacles to add specificity to your performance. Um, you know, to add specificity actually to a moment. Because again, very often, you're literally shooting a moment. They'll point the camera at you and you'll say, this is the part where you're walking down the hallway and you look over your shoulder because you think someone is coming behind you. That's the scene. That's what you're shooting. You know, and the, that frankly is not something. That's going to be something that's going to be on screen for two and a half seconds. Not something that having 12 obstacles in the scene is going to help have that quick shot be clear, but having a very clear obstacle is going to help that read in a very different way. Um, but again, if you have a 10 minute scene on stage and you play only one obstacle, the scene's going to be flat. That's great. <laughs> I mean, uh, objective and obstacle, I, because, well, I always think of object, objective and obstacle as, as you know, really related to each other, but it's, it's very true that they're related, they can be related to each other in a different way when you're working in in film or television that in the same way that you need those things to center you when the wall is gone and the camera's in your face and the boom is like touching the hairs that are sticking up on the top of your head which probably isn't good for the boom to do that I'll probably pick that up but probably tell somebody uh, but you know they probably can hear in their headphones what I'm saying is you can have something to ground you, that it's something to come back to and say, okay, this take is going to be about the fact that, you know, it's the objective is, you know, I need him to, uh, you know, in terms of the story, like this is the scene where I tell him that his father is the one who's responsible and that, the, you know, an, an obstacle in the scene can be that he, you know, that it does, it isn't looking at me, that he's not paying attention. You can physicalize it in one scene. It can be that, it can be, it, you can, you can, you can, pick different options of an obstacle in order to A, give um, nuance and uh, specificity to a scene in any given take, but also to ground yourself in something that you can play. That Because once you, know, once you present yourself with an obstacle, your objective then becomes removing the obstacle to get what you want. So it becomes a very specific thing that you can play and another option, something to bring in when you're working in multiple takes. Uh, let's talk a bit about the way in which the way that you construct your character's circumstances can uh, help you, whether those circumstances be uh, sort of the broad character history that we've been talking about or the immediate prior circumstances leading into a scene. Um, one of the challenges in, in film for previous circumstances is sometimes the, the things that happened to the character 
minutes or instants ago, actually you had happened to you when you were filming it weeks ago or days ago or you know six months when you're doing reshoots so you have to keep track of the previous circumstances of the actions of that the audience sees more carefully because they happen out of order out of sequence in a in a play the previous circumstances of an hour ago probably happened to you five minutes ago when you did the scene so I mean, that's only one part of previous circumstances because there's also, you know, what happened to you a year ago or, you know, when you were a child. So th there are different things to keep track of, but that's just one of the things that makes uh, acting previous circumstances more challenging on film. Well, and I also think that, that the role of those sorts of previous circumstances are, is kind of very often fundamentally different on stage and on film. Because for exactly that reason, that when you are doing a scene, that you know, when you're doing a play, you've just done, frankly, usually the important information moment of this person's life that's leading up to the need for this scene. You know, you can kind of roll on that in some very serious ways. I mean, certainly it's very helpful to choose, you know, very specific moment right before of you know, where exactly you're coming from and, you know, precisely at this moment, but the story arc part is generally coming right to you. So you can use previous circumstances, created circumstances, to change direction when you need to, rather than to keep following the direction you've been following, because you can just keep riding that horse. But if you need to come into a scene and all of a sudden you're accusing the person you were friends with the scene before, you will need to create what has happened in the interim between these scenes. If you come in and are still friends with the person, well, then that is, you, you can just keep working with what you had. Whereas on film, for exactly the reasons that you were saying, the value of remembering and doing work on previous circumstances is that you may not have shot those circumstances yet, or you might have shot them quite some time ago. And so really, again, the role of previous circumstances on film is very often about keeping consistency in the track of a performance, whereas on stage it's about using it to change the direction of your performance. What about television, episodic television, where often, this is, I've never had a job like this, but I have some friends and colleagues who, who do and have, where you don't know mm. a lot of information about your character. If you shoot a pilot that happens to get picked up, fundamental things about the character will change, or the universe of the character will open up over the course of season one, season two, season three, season four, or things will change, or we will learn that this person has been the secret killer all along, or was secretly having an affair with the other person. And so that malleability of on set to be able to quickly jump into a new set of uh, previous circumstances and commit to them can help you in maintaining that consistency and also rolling with new information when there's a twist ending or you're on a show that's a thriller or a horror or a cop show, whatever it is, you know, it turns out I was the killer. Um, that can be a big thing to like, because you can't go back and redo the performance. You can't have been building up to that the whole time, but you can invest in what you have already built and include new previous circumstances, or even in the case, which I have been in, of uh, like alternate endings or alternate landing points in a project 
that if you know, I mean, if you don't know, there's that, but if you do know, you can help yourself provide the tools for whatever the two or three different tracks may be in the previous scenes too. You know, if you are in, in a position to know, like we don't know exactly which direction we're gonna go, either you're gonna stay together at the end or you're not. And it's this long relationship drama. Well, there can be a take where, you know, three quarters of the way through, you decide if she does this later, we're, it's gonna, we're gonna stay together. And in the, the same scene, do a take that's, if she does this later, that's the end and it's never gonna work. And, you know, give the options for the, the person that's cutting it together eventually. The other thing that's worth saying about that too is that, you know, whatever it is that you're working on, you know, to give those alternate choices alternate, is that everything in film is about context too. You know, it's the, I think it was Sergei Eisenstein that did the experiment where he took um, a picture of a man standing outside a church looking at something and they took the picture of the man and then cut to a funeral. No, a picture, it was a picture of a funeral and then cut to the man and a picture of a wedding and cut to the exact same shot of the man and asked people, showed them one or the other and asked people to describe the look on the man's face and how he was feeling. And the ones who just saw the funeral said, oh, the man is very sad. The one who just saw the wedding, the exact same shot, they said the man is very happy. So it's that idea of it actually depends less that you need to give them an option where you are doing any one specific thing. The point is you give them options. Yeah. And the way that they cut it together, the way that they put the order in which they put shots is really going to determine the way the story gets told. You know, and, and what you want to be doing as an actor on, on again, an, an actor on, on film is you're trying to spin out as much thrilling raw material as you can for people to go make something out of, whereas the, the opposite is true on stage. You're trying to throw out in the first third or so of rehearsal a lot of raw material to work with, but then it's about shaping it into a product, which is just frankly not your job in the film. Yeah, You're it's, not there for the part where that happens. It's again a function of the process dictating what the technique is, because yeah. as Kit, you said earlier, that the, you know, the buck stops with the actor in terms of the storytelling and that moment-to-moment -moment work in the theater, but in film and television, it, it ends with the, with the director. What about the role of stakes in, in work on, on film versus theater? My instinct is that it, they would have the same role. I mean, having stakes is sort of a fundamental you don't want the low stakes. <laughs> you always want the high stakes. I feel like for me, <laughs> this might be a little weird, but for film, it is about that dropping in and knowing what gets you and what will get you for this moment. So I feel like my stakes are sometimes way more extreme in terms of, oh, okay, I'm gonna admit this, but like, I was, there was one shot for a film where I had to be like looking out the window and I was like really freaking nervous and like I had to be really nervous and, and the thing that got me in that moment was that there are cougars outside walking the streets. I don't think I would put cougars in a play I was working on. Do you know what I mean? But it was something that was like visceral and right there and I know I'm scared of cougars so the cougars are outside and no one that's watching the film will know there are cougars but I'm probably going to choose different stakes 
when I'm doing a play. Well, because it would, it would break the reality of the play for you. I mean, right. you, you know, that it, you'd, you'd start, you, you'd leave the play to go imagine cougars. Whereas in this shot, it was just you looking out a window and a camera trained on you to see you looking nervously out the window. And so that idea of the most authentic nervous fear you could find was imagining that instead of armed men downstairs, it was wild animals roaming the street. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that seems much more useful. And again, I also totally understand why that would be disruptive towards the role that you're creating over the course of a play yeah. if you just introduced it into the middle of a play. <laughs> it's funny, Jenny, the thing you said earlier about film camera acting being like auditioning hmm. really seems to ring true because that's almost that's true too of like you know in previous episodes we would talk about auditioning and monologue work where you're not responsible for the entirety of the play you're responsible for delivering your 30 60 second monologue mm -hmm. and you can build whatever universe of stakes or circumstances or previous character history in order to get the most out of yourself in the room on the given day to center yourself and put yourself in the best position to do good work, which is essentially what we're talking about about here too. You know, it's building those circumstances in a way that and and the stakes of those circumstances uh, to a point that, you know, you can have that that center uh, within all of the stuff that's happening around you. I do think also that there's something in terms of how you deploy stakes. In the case of film, I, I mean, I think actually has a lot to do with the size element, that there really are ways in which you can use stakes to make your performance bigger on stage. Because that's actually something, if, if, it, if an if an, uh, director says it needs to be bigger, it needs to be more, rather than just flailing your arms about, the, the first place you're going to want to do probably is to ratchet up your stakes on stage. Whereas actually on film, what can become really, really interesting is to ratchet up the stakes, but then contain them. You know, but then not let them out. Whereas on, on stage, you generally want to have your stakes and let them express themselves. Whereas on film, it's very thrilling to have a camera pointed at someone who is full to the brim of whatever they're full of, but are keeping it together because you can see it dancing in their eyes and the little ways in which their mouth twists. Uh, twitches and things like that, which you just very simply can't see on stage. So you need to pour the stakes into a bigger physical expression. What about the role of sensory work uh, in uh, stage versus theater? I think we were talking about it earlier when you're on a set shooting in 10 degree weather, but you're dressed for summer or something like that. The, you know, the, the work you can do on as it, the sensory work you can do on stage is really often something that can enhance the way you're helping to tell the story of the circumstances you're in but on on set i feel like there are a lot of opportunities where it's the way you overcome the the technical uh obstacles of being on set that it can be a real tool for you in a in a technical practical way where it's not your job to tell the story of what the weather looks like in the film but it, it is probably often your job to overcome the obstacle of what the weather happens to be while you're shooting the film and it also is something I mean if you're playing you're you know in the freezing cold on stage or on film I mean, I would argue doing sensory work on what it actually is like to be cold, to have a very specific way of, of, of expressing that, 
is what you'd want to do on stage and on film. That said, if you're 50 feet from an audience member and you're sort of shivery and rubbing your arms, you could get away with it in a different way than if you do that on film, no one is going to buy that you're actually cold if you are not doing some work on what it actually is like to be cold. You know, so it just becomes more important, again, the closer the camera is to you because people can see. I also think that there are ways in which certainly that kind of sensory work literally having to do with, you know, finding heat, finding cold, finding that sort of thing. But also you can use your sensory work and sense memory work and effective memory work, which I think all kind of comes similarly in there, to find emotional aspects of a scene too. But I think that there, it's, a, it's a bit different in terms of just because of the demands of the media, respectively, you know, how you are going to, you know, to deploy it. That usually I think your sensory work for a stage production is going to be useful in the exploratory phase to kind of find out things about your relationship to a scene and potentially you can build in triggers into the thought process that you've got if you want to bring in specific sensory work partway through a scene, although that you really have to build that into your performance. Whereas, you know, if you're shooting a scene in a film, and again, we're talking about you shooting a moment, you know, you can be, while they're spending the three hours setting up the lights, you can be in your dressing room or in your trailer you know, preparing yourself in such a way that you can come in and have a very specific sensory preparation for that very specific moment in a way that, you know, you just wouldn't be able to on stage because you can't transfer sensory moment to sensory moment to sensory moment to sensory moment. It just doesn't function that way. But if that's a way that you really connect to and you really like to work, it is something that you really could be working, you know, with a real very specific sensory trigger for almost every moment in the film uh, if you wanted to. And that's really a similarity between the two media that shows itself in incredibly different ways because ultimately you have the responsibility to do the work that you need to do in order to be prepared for rehearsal, for performance, for a table read, for you know day one of shooting, for the day when you know you're doing the scene where this thing happens, um, or for the moment when they realize because of something unforeseen we have to shoot that thing where that really high stakes crucial moment happens three days before you thought you were going to that you want to put yourself in a position, whether that means staying, you know, don't eat all the little cold cuts and tiny uh, uh, candy bars at the craft services table and like stay, you know, wherever you need to be on set or in the trailer or whatever and working on the upcoming scene or recalling that, that sensory work or prepping, you know, doing a lot of prep before you arrive, you know, and the kind of work that you know that you need to do finding what your process is for a given medium in order to set yourself up to succeed and to be able to do the kind of work you're capable of doing is the objective. Just the obstacles are a little bit different and so the objective then becomes removing the obstacles. Before we wrap up, are there any tools that are specific and unique to one medium or the other? I think projecting volume is specific to theater. That's not necessarily something you would use for a film.
memorizing your lines is different and hugely different. Memorizing an entire play and also having the opportunity to rehearse and kind of learn the lines as you work through the scenes is completely different from learning lines, doing them out of order, sometimes being delivered a script the night before you have to do it, uh, navigating changes on the fly and having to deliver them on set right on the spot. Um, it's a totally different skill set. They might ask you on a film to improv also, which is, you know, if they're rewriting as they go, they might ask you to rewrite as you go. Well, and I know on commercials, which is kind of a, a different thing too, is they have kind of six different scripts that they walk into with different endings and different scenarios. So it's kind of, I mean, it's memorizing six different ways that this will go down and six different takes that you'll do. There seem to be a series of camera and set TV and film specific skills that are, oh, that I mean, come up all the time. Like hit, hit, make sure you're able to hit your mark so that you're set up in the frame correctly. You know, there are issues of like eye line and sometimes you're playing a scene with your scene partner who's on one side of the camera because they can't stand there because there's crew everywhere and you're playing a scene against a dot in the wall or a different person who's standing there but you're playing the scene with the person who's reading the lines or playing with the script supervisor or the stand-in. I mean, like working with like visual effects, you know, responding to something that isn't there, whether it's a little thing like, uh, you know, we're going to put the... Uh, what's playing on the TV in later digitally, and you have to be watching it. Or there's a dinosaur behind you. Or there's a dinosaur behind you or in front of you or chasing you or you're on Mars or you're in outer space and, and all, all of those things. You know, I think finding a way to <laughs> do your work and have your sensory work and your obstacle and all that stuff, really, you know, be incredibly prepared and have a lot of options to center yourself in terms of finding that spine, you know, when you're in the midst of all that craziness and just looking at a, a green. green just spanning out in front of you. It's interesting because there actually are a lot of instances in a stage production hmm. where you're required to be looking at something that isn't there. Um, but it does feel kind of fundamentally different when you're looking at the dragon that's flying overhead that everyone is also imagining in the same way that you're imagining versus you're looking at something that then when people are watching, they will actually be able to see the thing that you were not able to see. Yeah. I, I'm not sure why, because they're very similar things, but they do feel like very different things. It's, it's, so, it's, it's freaky to, to work with that stuff. I mean, I never worked where it was like a dragon or something, but I've done things where there have been big effects shots. And, you know, hopefully they'll have the art there or something and be able to have a, some kind of thing that stands in or you know in place that they'll be able to say like this is what you're looking at and it's over there and this thing over here will connect up and then this is a tree and that's where the thing is you know so that you have some kind of sense of what you're you're looking at but uh, it can be really I mean it can throw you up it can be pretty nuts I also think there's a major difference we haven't talked at all about yet uh, which is the presence of the audience in a live uh, production and your yeah. need to navigate them you know, that, that there's a real relationship that happens, especially in a comedy, although not only in a comedy, but between, you know, a, a performer on a live stage and, and a live audience. And that actually was something I, Tim actually talked about it, I think, in one of our early episodes here about, I think, the first film Rodney Dangerfield was in. 
where he thought he was failing miserably because no one was laughing until someone explained to him they will ruin the take if they laugh. That's why no one is laughing. You know, but it's, it's I mean, it's, 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 two, it's two very different things in that way. And there are some, you know, filmmaking techniques to build for laughter, but then once again, that buck ends with the director and the editing of the film and not on the actor to hold for laugh at the end of the laugh line. That is actually, I always do find it amazing. There are some comedies that I remember seeing in the theater that I was just like, this is the most well-timed thing. And then you see it on video at home and it's so slow. And it's because they've built in time for when there's a room full of people, there's gonna be 15 seconds of, of laughter here. And uh, I mean, how the, I, that's, it's really extraordinary, you know, how they do that. But. What that leads me to is actually the, the things that are kind of both in some way. I mean, like a sitcom that has a live studio audience, of which I think there are still two, <laughs> right? Or, a, you know, like a talk show, those kind of things that you, you have an audience or you're holding for an audience and staying. And I mean, I guess the like sketch comedy shows are another example of that. Or in film, the really long shot, you know, the 10 minute shot where like, what is it, Goodfellas, where they follow them all the way through the downstairs of the club and the kitchen and onto the stage, where essentially what the director is doing and the actors are doing in that instance is mounting a theater production, and we're going to do this whole 10-minute take, and yeah, if we screw it up, we're going to have to go back and do it again. We have the option to do so, but the people down in the kitchen, before they walk into the room, are are ready to go, and that whole thing is happening concurrently as the camera travels through it. So there are some ways in which film can be like theater. There's this great movie, Russian Ark, that all happens in one take in this, you know, mm. setting that is essentially, you know, one, like, two-hour take. You know, th those places where it mashes up, I think, are really exciting and interesting. Although, again, the challenges are different. Uh, yeah. You know, because I, I mean, I think about... Um, There's still differences, yeah. Yeah, The Messenger is actually a, a film that feels so, like, documentary style almost. And because it, it just, you know, these long, long takes, it just kind of feels like the camera is chasing the actors around and catching what it can. But you were in that, Jenny, and you, I remember you came back from set... And, you know, we're talking about, oh, this shot. And so I walked down the hall and the camera circled around me and I had to wait a beat until I stepped forward and then it came twice around again and then went over my desk. And I just remember thinking as you were saying it, I was like, well, God, that seems like they're trying awfully hard for what seems like it should be a much more, you know, simple, gritty story. That's, except that they so clearly thought it through so clearly in such a way that it felt off the cuff. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it can't be. I mean, you're not going to get the right person's face for the right reaction shot on a great big long tracking shot like that unless it's planned out incredibly carefully. Yeah, and for that, all of our rehearsals, I mean, were strictly technical in terms of this is when you stand up and go to here and right. then you're going to bend and the camera's going to pass you here, so you got to go here. I mean, it was like... I mean, I think we had like two two runs at a rehearsal, and it was all like technical notes that we were getting. It's like the you know, it makes it it brings the technical technical elements more into focus and puts more pressure on the take, on yeah. the performance, on everything because there's so much at stake. Which is, I think, maybe why film it's often broken up more into smaller bits because it takes some of that 
you know, relieve some of that pressure that we can get this piece and then this piece and then this piece rather than put it all in. But those, I mean, it's extraordinary when, when, it's, when it's pulled off, especially those long shots that span, what, uh, Children of Men ends with, has mm -hmm. two oh, right. incredibly long shots that span hundreds of yards of ground and levels of buildings and yeah. hundreds one of extras shot of battle yeah. shot mm -hmm. um, that goes, I mean, it's essentially, you know, one steady cam following the action and to coordinate the, I mean, the... And there were explosions. I mean, that, yeah. that the children I mean, and that's the, the other that thing that puts crazy. a lot of pressure on the performance is you have, we only have this giant explosion one time. We can only take down this building once. We can only mm -hmm. flip this car over one time to do this sequence in the Matrix or whatever the heck it is. Mm -hmm. So we can't have, you know, Lawrence Fishburne picking his nose during the scene because... <laughs> we we only have this car, yeah. we don't have backup cars, so in that case you only you know you only get one shot at it. And if he's picking his nose, he's picking his nose. And I'm not sure what the exact skill set is for the actor in that regard, but the idea that you have to be ready on the day because everybody else is. I mean, in in theater there is the understudy who can be there to step in because the show has to happen. Mm -hmm. But if you... Uh, if and you, in this scene, the role will be played. <laughs> yeah. Right. If you are deathly ill on the day they have to shoot the scene, you still have to shoot the scene most times. Like, they, they're not going to not... I mean, if you're small enough, maybe they can get rid of you and get somebody else in. But, like, if you're the star, you have to do it no matter what. Um, and and I, even if you're not, if they've already yeah. shot a scene with you yeah. as the brother, you're the brother. I mean, that's something people will notice. That's the DVD commentary. It's like, you know, what's what's his name? Movie star was really sick during the scene. You think, who the hell cares if they were sick during the scene? But it took a lot for that person to get out there and for all of them, in many cases, multi-millions of dollars and hundreds probably actually thousands of, of labor hours that have gone into setting up that shot, you know, it's get like some Kleenex and they're saying like make up it was like the most unsexy moment. <laughs> oh yeah. And you have to film your love scene and you, you have, you know, food poisoning, like too bad. Allergies. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So forget your allergies and <laughs> stop being a wimp and just uh, finish it because there are other people that are depending on you. Well, I'm actually sort of curious from your guys' point of view, because I have directed for film and for theater, and I know that the demands on a director in the two media are very different. We could do a whole other episode about that, but what has your experience been about the difference between the way that you work with a director in a film versus the way you work with a director on a theater piece? It's actually interesting depending, I mean, it, it depends certainly what project you're doing and what, what uh, role you are and kind of the bigness of your role. But, I mean, as a background actor, the director doesn't talk to you. It's the assistant director that's dealing with the background actors. And even on some commercial stuff that I've done, it's mostly been the assistant director or, you know, or occasionally the director will come over and say something, but it's kind of you talking to all sorts of different people and different departments mm -hmm. more than you're interfacing with, with the director. Well, that um, actually has some, some interesting similarities with the musical, too. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, because, yeah, it, sure. you know, it very often will be the choreographer is the person who deals with the chorus. Yeah. You know, or even the associate director. Mm -hmm. Usually an assistant director won't, but the, the, the director may very well give the associate kind of the 
you know, the control over yeah. sort of the larger body of. Yeah, your first cast. AD is often like the Wrangler, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. has the megaphone and is dealing with a lot of that stuff. And then there are different parts of performance that are, you know, un under the control or guidance of like a specific. You have a stunt coordinator and you have mm -hmm. a effects coordinator and you know the cinematographer you don't really have a lot of interaction with as a director it's, it's interesting too because the the like first ad and i mean it depends a little bit but generally it's not just a matter of they're out there doing the director's bidding i mean there is some of that but they actually are really responsible for like the yeah. background actors oh, yeah. like the director doesn't deal with the background actors but that's like a real skill yeah. you know the idea of the lead characters are walking down the street and then the lady with the package walks out and kind of does a double step to step around the man in the hat who then goes into the dress shop i mean it like in it, the life that happens around the lead actors uh, is very often choreographed by somebody who's not the director and can add a huge amount to the life of a scene. And if you're working background and you're even working with the second unit, you may never even meet or see the director. Yeah. You yeah. know, you might be called for a day of shooting that the director's not there for because none of the principals are involved. Well, and it's so interesting because there is such a delineation of roles, I think, where even I've shot stuff in a very small space where there's been extras and there's been the principals and the director will give a direction to the extras to the first AD to give to them even though they, the extras can clearly hear the director giving yeah. that note but because that stuff comes from the first AD the director isn't speaking and not because you know they're being a terrible person or don't want to be bothered but that's kind of the role well, of, part of it of is, what it is out of respect yeah. for the first AD's job is yeah. to work with those people but and it's to funny when you're there would be, would be rude and yeah. it's funny when you're there and you can hear you know what I mean you can hear the director talking to the extras or not talking to them but giving a note and they can hear it but yeah, that's really true. I mean, there's so, there's so much stuff happening on a, a film set and there are so many different things that need to be accounted for and calibrated and mm -hmm. specific and the stakes are very high that I think the like the chain of command or the protocol is incredibly is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And you know, <laughs> I know the you guys are can relate to the it's like the last day. This is a theater thing. Like the last day of the rehearsal before tech and the director's like, "Okay, listen. We've done a lot of great work here." Now we're going to go into tech mm -hmm. and I'm going to have like, I'll be able to answer some questions about some performance stuff, but I'm really going to be focusing on the lights and where things need to be in the set and dealing with the crew. So we can't take a lot of time to deal with the performance and I'm just going to trust that you're going to do the work that's there. And if there's some big issue, like let me know and we can address it. And I feel like being on a film set is essentially tech all the time. Like you're just always in tech because you are always in tech because as Kit said earlier, from the first day you walk in a set, that first take, could be in the movie because everything else is happening around. And there are so many tools because the buck ends in terms of storytelling with the director. There are so many other, it's, it's like hyper tech, you know, because there are so many other elements that need to be precise and can tell the story. You are one of many ways in which the story can be told. Which I think as an actor just means you need to be incredibly aware of what your process is and, yeah. and, and how you work as an actor because you're kind of on your own. You know what I mean? You can yeah. ask questions and you can get help, but like you're you're there putting together a performance, and a lot of times there isn't time to be dealing with other people or talking it through. Or, and again, I don't think it's it's binary, but it's it's um, because some, but but it's it's a difference in the process that leads to again a difference in technique. But some directors will work, you know, with oh, extensive absolutely. rehearsal, or yeah, yeah. you know, if it's 
Clint Eastwood famously does very few takes uh, and and is a really efficient filmmaker. So crews love working with him because they are done quickly and there's mm -hmm. no you know delay on set, but also doesn't necessarily work with the actors that much. Or if you're working with Lars von Trier, he will torture you and make you want your, to cry for the rest of your life. So you know the different directors work in different ways, yeah. but I think there is it's that difference of process that translates again into a difference of the way that you have to work on your technique. And I think that's a skill that's definitely unique to film is being able to to bring your own motivations and and build your own performance without that input that you might expect from a theater director. Mm -hmm. um, you need to be able to bring those things to the table yourself. Or, yeah. or sometimes without your other, your scene partner might not be there or the dinosaur. Yeah. I also think it really is important to realize and remember that ultimately the actor is not the one who is creating the performance of their character. That ultimately it's going to be the choices that are made in the edit room that determine what it is that that character is. And, you know, the exciting thing about that, though, is that you can think on one hand that, oh, well, this is a situation where you have to go give a full-on performance with no rehearsal. Where I think, perhaps more accurately, it's as though you're always in rehearsal and the director has the leisure of taking the best things that happened in rehearsal and putting it in the film. I mean, certainly I know I've directed stage productions where it's like, why could we never get back to that thing that was so great in week three of rehearsal? Well, on a film set, everything that happens is an option to use. You know, and I do think that it's important, again, in a different way, that when you are on the film set, you're treating it with as much sort of you know, verve to kind of take it apart and explore it and try different things that we've always talked about is so important to do in that first third or half of the rehearsal process of a stage production. Well, I have a question, um, which might be a worm can potentially, but I actually wonder if it's harder to go from film acting to stage acting or from stage acting to film acting. And I suspect that it's probably going from film acting to stage acting, but I, I actually wonder if that's, I don't know, I just wonder. I think that obviously it's gonna depend on the actor and the training and, and the background of, an act, of you know, the given actor, but I would, I would make the same bet, Jenny, that it's probably gonna be a huge challenge to go from the work you can do on a film set and the way you can work kind of moment to moment on a film set um, that doesn't always translate into being able to craft a performance that lasts over a whole night and do it day in and day out. The stamina involved in being a stage actor is a specific skill set. Um, you really have to go into training, and I, I mean that almost physically, you know, to be trained to keep up with that. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that it you know, you can go back and forth between the two, but I think you, you have to have that foundation mm -hmm. to be a stage actor. Although there's also long days on being a, a film actor where you have to mm -hmm. be able to go for long periods of time and keep up, the, so a different kind of stamina where it's not about your acting, but actually just a, a, a physical stamina that ultimately you have to be able to act as well at three in the morning as you did at two in the afternoon you have to have that kind of thing. But also there's a skill set, the skill set that we talked about uh, with like 
hitting your mark and eye lines and things like that. It's it seems like definitely something you could learn with time, but it's it's an actual thing that you can learn. Like someone can teach you and you can you can get it. Like it's a, I mean when you're moving from stage to film, that's something that you have to learn. But yeah. I would say that there's there's one ultimate answer to which is harder, like that they're difficult, I think, in different ways because they're a different set of skills or techniques. But there's also that fundamental difference in process that I think takes a lot of getting used to. That the techniques are, they're techniques, so they're things like, I mean, a, a stage actor, I think, is already well-versed at modulating different techniques and incorporating different techniques in a performance, get like combat or accents or style or a lot of the stuff we talked about in the recent episode about playing comedy that we can that there are certain techniques that help shape a performance uh, in the same way that there are certain working on camera techniques that help shape a performance that you can calibrate in a, in a technical sense but then there are those fundamental process differences that I think are where the real transition lies or the inability to hold on to the technical stuff given the difference in the process so that depending on the actor and depending on the level of experience and depending on the strengths and or weaknesses of the actor, that that transition can be different, differently difficult for different people. And I think that, you know, part of it too has to do with, you know, that idea of, you know, where the buck stops in a performance too. That it's not a matter, I think it's a very difficult thing both to be a very good stage actor and to be a very good film actor but in a film it is easier for a director to compensate for the failures or the shortcomings of an actor than it is on stage because ultimately again the director will not be there on stage when the show is running it is in the hands of the actor who needs to deliver whereas again a all a director really needs is one good take. You know, hmm. the the actor doesn't need to deliver. And candidly, there are techniques you can use if an actor isn't really delivering. Where if you move a cam, if you move the camera around them in a certain way, you can create a much more, you know, a feeling that they're doing more than they actually are. If a, if an actor isn't able to emotionally connect to a moment, it's amazing how much it can look like they are if you just slowly push in on. Well, and yeah. put music under them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so I mean, I, I think it's a it's a tricky question about is it easier to trans. You know that there are real there are real skills that yeah. are very important yeah. to each one of them. But again, ultimately, there comes a point at which a film actor leaves the process, and it's up to other people to work with what they've left, as opposed to if you have a stage actor who does not have the technique to do a stage actor's job, they will not be good and likely damage the production to an extent that a, you know, not so strong performance in a film or on a film set does not necessarily damage a film. Well, I also wonder the difference between going back and forth of like uh, smallness and bigness. Do you guys know what I mean? Like in terms yeah. of like, going from film to the bigness of stage in terms of movement and vocalization, all the stuff that we talked about tonight, and then, you know, or going from, or, that, or going from, you know, the smallness and specificity or whatever film and kind of expanding that up. And I imagine it's easier to bring it down, um, but I don't know. 
Well, I mean, almost either way. I mean, we talk about, you know, your, your, your instrument and your body and your intellectual and emotional, you know, constellation being your instrument. And, you know, it's a, it, it is a thing that if you've been playing, you know, lead rock guitar or like, you know, classical Spanish guitar, they're both guitars, you know, but I imagine I don't play either one of them, you know, but, but I, I, I do imagine, though, if you've been practicing one of them a great deal and you've got the fingering down right for one or the other, mm-hmm. though you technically do have the skills to play the other one, you know, your fingers are used to playing one form or the other, you know, if you do one more than the other. So, I mean, I think similarly, if you are accustomed to, you know, to really being filling a hall with your performance, it must be very difficult to bring it down. And I've actually seen yeah. some stage actors I respect enormously who, when they first start working on film, either they're just kind of too big for film or actually what I've seen more more often is that they've told you need to not do so much and they're just really flat because they haven't figured out how to take all the work they know how to do and put it at a size that works on film. So they just don't do anything. Because there's that thing about, uh, you know, do you want me to not act at all? And the answer is yes, but that's really not true. You do need to act, but you need to act at the scale that works on film, which is different. But I think it, we're, I'm sure it's the opposite way too, that if you are a film actor who is used to working in that intimate setting and all of a sudden you say, okay, now 1,200 people will be in the room and make sure the one in the back of the house can feel what you're doing. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it, it's just the muscles that you've been exercising or not exercising, um, you know, will, will, will come into play. And I think a huge part of it in either direction is acknowledging that there is a difference and recognizing what you can do the same in both circumstances and what you have to learn about and what you have to modulate and what you have to change and really taking the time to figure out no matter which way you're working what is your way in and acknowledging that it it needs to come out differently I think that's a good place to wrap up if you're liking what you're hearing and would like to tell other people about it please let your friends know the podcast is out there and also go to iTunes where you can subscribe if you're not subscribed already. Uh, And you can also write us reviews and give us stars. If you'd like to learn more about the Cry Havoc Company, about our educational programs, our new play development programs, and opportunities to come to public events featuring the work of the Cry Havoc Company, and if you would like to support the work of the Cry Havoc Company, you can visit www.cryhavoccompany.org. You can find us on Facebook as the Cry Havoc Company, or on Twitter at CryHavocNYC. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions about the podcast, you can email us at podcast at cryhavoccompany.org. So, for myself, Jen, Jersey, Jenny, Jen, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.